2 Samuel 16, 1 through 4. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met with him, with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred summer fruits, and the skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage, let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. Good morning, church. It is uh, good to be with you and good to be back in uh, 2 Samuel, where we have been for some time. Well, back uh, more than 30 years ago, uh, I was a senior in college. I had been um, dating or courting, falling in love with Michelle, however you want to describe that. Uh, But there was a problem. She was headed to grad school in California. I was heading to grad school in Texas. Uh, Once I ended up there, I learned there they have a phrase uh, for California, uh, the land of the fruits and nuts. So I was uh, headed there. She was headed uh, down south. We hadn't known each other that long, and I didn't know if she was the one or not. Should I marry her? That was the problem. What should I do? Well, if I looked uh, to the Bible, I could find some help in Genesis 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This isn't for every human being, marriage, but it is for many. It is the pathway. And a wife here uh, means an eligible woman. She, she was an eligible woman, so, it, you know, this, this, this is helping me. Um, yeah. Yeah, this is, uh, this is an okay thing to do. If we look further in the New Testament, it says, uh, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? This isn't a passage about marriage. It is a broader passage, but it applies to marriage. It applies in many areas. She's a believer. So I have a woman. She's a believer. But is this the person for me to marry. We didn't know each other uh, that long, and this is a very difficult decision uh, to make. And so the, the Bible doesn't really answer specifically that question. How do I know that she is the one? So what I need is wisdom, and wisdom is what today's sermon was, is about. That's what I needed back then. And we're going to see in today's passage that David also is desperate for wisdom. And as we approach today's passage, 
I want us to ask this question. What is the mutual human condition that I share, that you share with David that requires God's grace? We're going to look at the passage in just a moment. And when we read the Bible, we want to ask this question. In this particular case, the main character in the passage is David. And we share a mutual human condition with him. And I want to suggest that that mutual human condition that we share with David is a desperation for wisdom. We often lack understanding and wisdom about what to do in life. And that's the situation that David is in, and he desperately needs wisdom. The end of the story, you know, uh, I I ended up marrying Michelle, but I took a year off uh, from going to seminary and prayed, and I had one very close friend who had already been married, and I, I needed wisdom from him. And, and so I, it took a year of, of seeking the Lord and, and praying and talking with my one friend who was already married to help me. So we approach today's text with this perspective. What is the mutual human condition that we share with David where you and I need God's grace um, in our lives? So let's turn to the text now. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 1. It says, When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. Now let's just pause here and refresh what is going on at this point in 2 Samuel, since it has been some time prior to Advent that we've been in this book of the Bible. What is going on is David has fled Jerusalem. He is being pursued. Uh, His son, Absalom, wants to take the throne by killing his father, and it is just a mess and a terrible situation. So David and many of the people who are faithful to him have fled, and they have fled uh, to the Mount of Olives, which is just across the valley from Jerusalem, those of you that have been there, that's the summit that is referred to in verse 1. So he and those who have fled for their lives from Jerusalem have gone just over the summit, and there was Ziba. Some of you have been here. Uh, This is a picture of the Mount of Olives uh, today, and you can see what dominates the landscape today is not olives. There are olive trees there, but it's a cemetery, and this is quite a cemetery. How many of you have been there? To, to this cemetery. Some of you have been there. It is a profound experience to walk among these tombs. The cemetery is about 3,000 years old, and one of the most famous persons buried there, not David, but guess who it is? Absalom. Now, archaeologists and so on, they're skeptical that he's actually buried there, but according to tradition, One of the places you can visit in this cemetery is Absalom, that is uh, David's son. But this is where David is. It would have looked much different uh, in 1000 BC. Uh, Many more olive trees, much smaller cemetery. But this is uh, the skyscrapers off in the distance you you wouldn't have seen. But this is where he is fleeing Jerusalem, freeing the city. It seems a likelihood that Absalom may take over as the nation in general, especially in Jerusalem, are following him. 
And so he gets there and he sees Zuba, who is Ziba rather, who is the steward of Mephibosheth waiting for him. Let's come back to the text. We're in the middle of verse 1. It says, uh, he had a string, Ziba did, of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. The king asked Ziba, why have you brought these? We need to pause here just a moment with this question because on one level it is intuitively obvious to the most casual of observers why he's brought them. He's brought them as a generous gift to the king and to David and his men and those who are faithful to him who have fled Jerusalem. So that's obvious. So David is not asking the obvious. David has some sort of skepticism or concern about Ziba's motive here. Why have you brought these? And then we see Ziba's answer. The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and fruit are for the men to eat. And the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the desert. We see David's skepticism again in verse 3. The king then asked, where is your master's grandson? So the person who is in charge of all of these things who have been brought by Ziba is Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul. Where is he? So the careful reader here might read behind this question, has he stolen these things from Mephibosheth or has Mephibosheth given him these things? Where is your master's grandson? Why are you here and not Mephibosheth? There is skepticism going on here in David's mind. He needs wisdom to know how to respond to this man in this situation. What is happening here in this dynamic interaction between David and Ziba? So here's what Ziba says. Here's his response to these questions. He is staying in Jerusalem, Mephibosheth, his his master, the grandson of Saul, because he thinks Today, the house of Israel will give me back my grandfather's kingdom. So Ziba, his story is that Mephibosheth has turned away from David. Mephibosheth has been seated at David's table historically. If we, those of us who, who might remember about Mephibosheth, he is this person that we might describe as a, a paraplegic, someone who's not able to move about in himself, someone who's incredibly humble and thankful for what David has blessed him with. But the message is that he has turned on you, and he is expecting to inherit the kingdom. Somehow Absalom is going to hand it over to Mephibosheth. So here is what one commentator writes. He says, it is very difficult to see how the struggle between David and Absalom Absalom, David's son, who's violently pursuing David in the throne. It's very difficult to see how the struggle between David and Absalom could have resulted in Mephibosheth gaining the kingdom. On the other hand, it is easy to see why Ziba made the accusation. This accusation against Mephibosheth, a reward was immediately promised him. So what is the situation? This I am reading this text in such a way as you and I tried to identify with David. David needs wisdom to know how to respond to this presentation of these incredible gifts. And so we see David's response in verse 4. So the king said to Ziba, All that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. So David has made a judgment. 
And his judgment is this generous gift, is a generous gift. And Mephibosheth has betrayed David, and he gives all of the land, all of the animals, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. I humbly bow, Ziba said. May I find favor in your eyes, my lord, the king. So what has happened here? Now, if all we read is verses 1 through 4, we, we don't really know. It seems like David has perhaps made a wise judgment. He has made an evaluation on the motive of Ziba. So one of the first things we want to do when we want to try to understand what is going on here, was he telling the truth is what I'm getting at. Was Ziba telling the truth about Mephibosheth? One of the main principles of interpreting the Bible is Scripture interprets Scripture. And so we want to say, uh, does the Bible help us understand what has actually gone on here? And it very much does. So turn over to chapter 19 with me. Chapter 19 and verse 24. Now, spoiler warning, Absalom doesn't take the kingdom, and David is back in Jerusalem now, so here's, uh, here's where we are. We're back in Jerusalem. David is there. We're trying to understand what happened in verses 1 through 4 by looking at 19.24, and I'm going to read there. Chapter 19 and verse 24. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. Let me just pause there. That's a nice way of saying of, this guy is a mess. <laughs> he uh, hasn't done normal hygiene, let alone he hasn't put on his best clothes and so on for an audience with the king. So he looks like he just got out of bed, and it looks like he's just gotten out of bed for weeks maybe or months and this is the presence, this is the physical appearance he has in the presence of the king. Verse 25, when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? I mean, remember, Mephibosheth has been eating at David's table. There's been this affection between them. Why didn't you go? So David has made the judgment that Mephibosheth has betrayed him, but now he's asking him, why? Verse 26, my lord the king, Mephibosheth said, your servant, uh, I, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me, and he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. My lord the king is like an angel of God, so do whatever pleases you. All my grandfather's descendants deserved nothing but death from my lord the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. We're hearing the heart that the reader of 2 Samuel expects out of Mephibosheth, a heart of gratitude and humility and thankfulness. It would be incredibly uncommon to have a paraplegic from the previous king who was trying to kill David at his table. It's this incredible picture of grace. And Mephibosheth is expressing Thanks for that to David. Continuing in verse 28, So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? Verse 29, The king said to him, Why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the fields. Now that is interesting, right? 
So one of these guys is lying. But David decides to divide the fields, meaning the totality of the estate that belonged to Mephibosheth, that he gave all of it to Ziba. Now he decides to divide it between the two of them. So the careful reader should be asking here, why are you doing that? You made an error in judgment. You didn't have wisdom when you made this decision. Now he's faced with another decision, and he splits the, the, the inheritance, if you will. He, he splits his, his net worth, his property, his animals. Verse 30, let's finish with verse 30 in this text. Mephibosheth said to the king, Let him, let Ziba take everything now that my lord the king has arrived home safely. Mephibosheth is saying, I don't need half, half of the property. I don't need half of the animals. I have a seat at your table. I have what I need. This isn't a big deal to me whose name is on the title of the deed. Give it to Ziba. So, there are a variety of ways you could understand this. Again, our primary purpose in reading the Bible is not only to understand the facts before us, that's part of it, but God wants to change you and me. You and I are like David. We lack wisdom in everyday decisions, not just decisions like who I should marry, but everyday decisions, what should I do here? We lack wisdom. And David, what I think has happened here is he has learned that he was overconfident and he, has, he made this wrong judgment and he does not want to repeat that. David is not wanting to lean on his own understanding. And so he has decided to split this in order to discern what was actually going on. One commentator writes this, and I'm in agreement with him. He says, David here demands the division of the fields in order to discern whether Mephibosheth or Ziba is the liar. So he has split the fields, and Mephibosheth says, give it all to him, indicating what the reader, I think, already knows. The careful reader already knows that Ziba is the liar, but Mephibosheth is a man of grace, of gratitude, of truth. But David is doubting his own judgment, and I want to suggest he is doing that in a healthy way. David was asking the question, if we go back to our original text, verses 1 through 4, he is asking the question, should I believe Ziba or should I not believe him? And David believed Ziba and he gave him the reward. The question David should have been asking is, is it actually knowable from Ziba, the situation here? It's not knowable. I can't make a decision. I need some outside help or source, preferably from Mephibosheth or something else. So this is a model for us about the complexity of life, of human relationships, of people's motives. And we often oversimplify things and have too much confidence in ourselves. Daniel Kahneman writes this. He says, when faced with a difficult question, we often answer an easier one instead, usually without noticing the substitution. David substituted the real question is, how do I learn what is the situation here? 
And I can't learn it just from information from Ziba. I need other sources, reliable sources. That's where David should have been. Instead, he substituted a, a more basic question, a more basic question. Hey, I'm going to make a judgment here. Is Ziba telling me the truth or not? And he made the wrong decision. Now, interestingly, many commentators, and I agree with them, think that this wisdom of David showing up in 2 Samuel 19, splitting the property to discern what was really going on, was picked up later by his son Solomon. If we forward a generation, some of you probably know where I'm going to go. There's a very famous story in 1 Kings chapter 3 where the king is Solomon. For those of you that aren't familiar with this story, there are two women living in a household. Both of these women have newborn babies. One of the babies dies. The women have an argument over who is the actual mother of the living baby. They're both saying, that's my baby. They're both saying the living baby is their baby. In the ancient world, you would go to the king to have this sort of thing resolved, adjudicated. So these two women go to King Solomon with this situation. The king says, this one says, my son is alive and your son is dead. While that one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was filled with compassion for her son and said to the king, please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other one said, neither I nor you shall have him cut him in two. Then the king gave his ruling, give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. This wisdom may have been appropriated from David's wisdom here. Finishing up in 1 Kings 3, when all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. This passage, I want to suggest, is about wisdom, and you and I desperately need it, making all sorts of decisions that we, in a daily basis, that we can't open our Bibles and, and, and figure out from the Bible verse alone what to do. We have an entire book of the Bible, Proverbs, about wisdom. You and I desperately need wisdom. This is the mutual human condition that you and I share with David. And we need to break through the facts of the text to say, okay, God, in what ways and how do, do I need to grow in wisdom? How do you need to grow in wisdom? So in the last uh, few minutes here in this passage, I want to, in this sermon, I want to apply how it is that we get wisdom. Okay, so how do we gain wisdom and live skillfully and make decisions that are God-glorifying? Well, I want to suggest uh, three things uh, from Scripture. The first one comes out of James 1. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given you. So we are called to be seekers of wisdom praying and asking God for wisdom. That's what I needed back when I was graduating from college. I needed wisdom. I didn't have it. 
Others had wisdom. I didn't have it. I've never done this before. I don't know what to do. So having a healthy skepticism of self, not leaning on your own understanding, and asking God for wisdom is where this all begins. One commentator puts it this way, wisdom is a God-given and God-centered discernment regarding the practical issues in life. Wisdom comes from prayer for God's help. So a regular part of our prayer lives should be crying out for wisdom in everyday decisions, simple decisions, not just the big ones about who I should marry or where I should live or whether we should move here or not or whether we should do this, but just very basic daily decisions. We need God's wisdom to help us in prayer is a massive part of this. Ask God to give you wisdom often, often. This is what James 1 teaches us. A second thing about wisdom, we're answering the question, what should I do? We should be seekers of wisdom who ask God through prayer to give it to us. And then secondly, uh, I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 about wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1, look at it on the screen with me. It says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. And Greeks search for wisdom. But what is meant by wisdom here is not biblical wisdom. What is meant here is not gospel wisdom. What is meant here is intellectual, philosophical systems. Think Plato and Aristotle. Greeks are looking for these great philosophical and intellectual systems And that's where we're going to get wisdom. The Jews are looking for signs, miraculous signs and power. Jews are looking for this, and Greeks are looking for that. That is not where biblical wisdom is found. Where is it found? We continue in the text. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. This is foolishness. Someone who dies in this terrible way, that only the worst criminals die. This is foolish. But to those who are the called, to those who are disciples, to those who are following Christ, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So there is, why do I have this text up here? I have this text up here because one of the names for our Lord Jesus is the wisdom of God. So one of the ways that we get wisdom is through a relationship with him and looking to him. And the wisdom of Jesus looks very different than the wisdom of the world, than than Platonic or Aristotelian wisdom. It looks very different than signs and wonders and powers for them alone. It is not about that. It is connected to the gospel. It is connected to the cross. We preach Christ crucified. So the theme that is coming out here is not the equally important theme of the resurrection, but the theme that is coming out here is servanthood and suffering and considering others better than yourself. This is at the heart of what Jesus did at the cross, redeeming the world. So a relationship with him and looking to Christ is the second piece I want to suggest today about how we get wisdom. So we ask for it through prayer and then we get close to Christ. We, we read the Gospels. We think about Christ. We meditate on passages that tell us about him. And we understand the kind of wisdom that he had to put others ahead of himself. In fact, the whole world who were rebels against him, he lived for them. This is 
this is the one that we look to as an exemplar of wisdom, not someone who has Aristotelian or Platonic logic and philosophy all dialed in. That's not gospel wisdom. Know and seek Christ is what I'm trying to say. The second thing, what should I do to find wisdom? We should pray, and then we know and seek him. I love uh, Fee's comment on 1 Corinthians 1. He says this, Had God consulted us for wisdom, we could have given him a more workable plan, something that would attract the sign seeker and the lover of wisdom, of worldly intellectual wisdom. As it is, in his own wisdom, he left us out of the consultation. He gave us Jesus, who died this scandalous death to show his love for the world. This is wisdom. He is the wisdom of God. If you want to be wise, it is not some intellectual or philosophical system. It is Christ himself that you want to be close to in the shadow of the cross. What should I do? Ask God to give you wisdom and know and seek Christ. Third and final passage I want to look at today. Again, we got here because we're asking the question, what is the common mutual human condition that I share with David? And what it is is I often don't know what to do. I don't know how to read this person. I don't know what their motive is. I don't know how to respond to this. I need wisdom. So third and final text, Proverbs 15. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. We need others. That is really what David needed. If we go back to 16, 1 to 4, he needed some source of information beyond Ziba. If all he's, all he's making his decision on is his interaction with Ziba with this incredibly generous gifts in front of him, you can see why he went the way that he went in giving all of the property and all of the land to Ziba. He made the wrong decision. He lacked wisdom. Plans fail for a lack of counsel, but with many advisors. With many advisors, they succeed. So we need wise people around us. We need uh, counterfactual. We need people outside, people who will give us counterfactuals that are outside of our perspective, outside of our domains. Uh, we, we need someone who can say to us, uh, no, you should not give Ziba the entire property. Uh, we, we need outside perspective and so this illuminates the importance of having mature, Christ-loving friends that you can go to and talk to and gain wisdom from. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. I'll close today sharing with you. Um, I, I, I meet with several groups of people uh, regularly, but uh, one of them, there's, there's four guys we get together regularly, and was really struggling with a particular issue uh, from, from the text of Scripture. Read probably 10 different commentaries, journal articles, all sorts of things. But the wisdom came from godly men in my own sphere of influence. That's the breakthrough came from, from conversation and emails and communication through people that I know who love God. It is important that we have people that are close to us that we can share our struggles, our burdens with, and, and get wisdom from them. We pray, we get close to Christ, and we seek counsel from others, not leaning on our own understanding, have a healthy skepticism of ourselves. 
This is the pathway to wisdom. Let's bow our heads and ask God to help us to gain it. Lord, we confess to you as we look at our prayer lives, there are many deficiencies. And one of those deficiencies would be asking you for wisdom on a regular basis. Your word tells us that you're generous and that you will give it to us. And so I am praying now that you would help us to be a praying people that look for wisdom. Lord, whether it's a simple decision of whether we should you know, buy this car or make this purchase or invest in this relationship or so many different things in life, not just those big decisions. The big ones are obvious we need wisdom, but just every day we need wisdom. Help us, God, to, to not lean in all, our own understanding in all our ways to acknowledge you and help us to look closely to Jesus and the cross and to see that true wisdom, his wisdom, is sometimes the very opposite of the world that involves suffering, that involves sacrifice, that involves surrender. Lord, help us to think your thoughts and your ways. And would you please help us to gain in wisdom? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.